0: (laughs) welcome my friends welcome welcome don't you want to know what intern they made play the bear i do i don't have any idea who that was um welcome we're glad that you're here we uh We're in this series uh, about my friend has a question. It's kind of a way for us to talk about um, the things that people ask us on a regular basis. I want to say welcome to our home or campus. Welcome online. We're glad that you're here. Uh, All religions do things differently, and so people ask us from time to time, why is it that you do things, you know, one way and and other churches do it the other? So my friend has a question is just a a great way to talk about what, what, what the answer to that question is and what the answer to a lot of questions are like, for example, next week, um, do you have to have Jesus to get to heaven? I mean, we're going to talk about that. How does this work with uh, the rest of religions? Last week, Todd did a great job talking about how does prayer work. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, is there room for an LGBTQ person in this congregation, the gay homosexuality issue? We're going to talk about all these different, uh, like, why is there suffering and how do miracles work? And I mean, these are the questions that people ask us on a regular basis. And so that's what we're doing during during this series. Um, you know, part of what we do here, let me just tell you right up front, is, is, Stylistic—that's the difference. Okay, part of it is strategic. Okay, and and so I'm going to share a link for you uh, on our social media page from a series that I did uh, back in the fall uh, called "Rumor Has It," and and that was a way to kind of talk about like why do we do the things that we do around here. You know, rumor has it the church just wants to be big. Rumor has it the church just wants my money. Some of those things that people were talking about, we address those, and I'd love for you to go back and watch those again. Um, and, and and one of the things is. Um, You know, video. Why why do we use video? Why why do we use video teaching? Why do we do the things we do? And it was really interesting for me. I had an interesting video teaching moment last weekend. Uh, I was preaching on both coasts at the same time last weekend. I had, uh, I had already agreed to go to Los Angeles to preach for a church out there about our size. It was starting Life on Mission. And if you're new, Life on Mission is a, is a book and a program for churches that I wrote to help them get their people stay on mission. And I had already agreed to do that along the way. And um, they had a Thursday night service. And, and so I was going to go out there and, you know, and do all that. Well, I'll, I'll just tell you why. Go ahead and throw my picture up. This is really why I decided to go out there because um, Olivia lives there. You know, I say yes to L.A. things a lot. That's my granddaughter, Olivia, and that's my shirt. Papa, the man, the myth, the legend, okay? That's really why I said, yeah, I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll come to Los Angeles and, you know, preach for you. And and, and um, the, the problem was, another church in Savannah, Georgia, came along and said, hey, why don't you come and do a leadership conference here, and what we want you to do is, is to teach a bunch of other church pastors, and then... And then, you know, preach our Wednesday night service. And since you can't stay for the weekend, we'll use the Wednesday night video all weekend. So I pre-taped the Thursday night message for Los Angeles here, sent it out to them so they could use it then. I preached on Wednesday night in Savannah, Georgia, which was really interesting because we had uh, issues with the weather. And the wheels touched down at 613 and uh, the service started at 645. And, um, you, you know, you walk in, go to the bathroom, grab your mic and, and go, and, and we made it happen and it worked. And they showed that all weekend. Then I taught pastors. So it just, it's just an interesting world that we live in with video now, and we're able to do that along the way. And, and again, it's, it's a strategic opportunity for us to be able to do things that we do. And as, at the Church Leader Conference, one of the things I told them is if you're going to be effective, you need to understand how to reach your mission field. You need to understand who they are, not not reaching people that you want to be like you, but reaching the people that are actually around you. It's pretty stupid for a missionary to go into some remote part of the jungle and, and make everybody learn English before they teach them about God, but that's what a lot of churches are doing. There are so many churches in the U.S. that are trying to get people to love wearing suits and dresses to church. There are so many churches that are trying to get people to love Shakespearean English, you know, a Bible written in 1611. There's so many churches that are trying to get people to fall in love with organ music all over again. I gotta ask you, does anybody have an organ music Pandora station right now? I, put your hand up if you do, okay? There, there may be one or two, I understand that. But for the vast majority of us, that's not true. So what I do is I teach our church leaders that they need to get to know their audience. And my story is pretty classic. Because my story is, 26 years ago, God called my wife and I to Chicago, where 80% of the people are Catholic. And I had gone to Bible college and seminary, but I knew the theological differences, but I really didn't know much personal knowledge about Catholicism. I grew up in Oklahoma. My line is, you know, I thought the Hail Mary was a football play. That that was it, you know. All I knew of Catholicism was what I saw in The Sound of Music. And and, and so I didn't really understand what was going on. I mean, there weren't a lot of Catholics in my area of Oklahoma. And and so when I came here, it took us a while, took me a while to learn Catholic. All right? Is, Is that fair? I had to learn Catholic. Like a missionary to Mexico needs to learn Spanish, I needed to learn where you come from. For example... Um, for example, uh, in our in our first building when I got here, this made total sense to me. But there was a sign as you walked in. There was a sign that pointed to the to the, to the auditorium, and it said sanctuary on it. I and mean, that's what we'd always called it. You know, growing up, it was a sanctuary. And I've got a good Irish Catholic friend that came to the church early on and started helping me with this. And uh, you know, one of the first things he told me was, you've you got to understand something. When a Catholic walks in and they see that sign, a sanctuary to, to a Catholic person is where the priest gets dressed. It's the place behind the auditorium. So Catholics are walking in, they're going, sanctuary? Nope, going that way, right? So we took it down and put up a sign that said worship center. There, there, There are differences that I needed to understand if I was going to reach these people who are here. And a disclaimer right up front, all right? This is my version of the differences between Catholicism and part of you. This is my version. I'm going to do my best, and um, you know, I may get to heaven, and there may be a nun there with a ruler who smacks me and says, I messed things up, but that's okay. Here's what I'm going, okay? I want to tell you right up front, um, you should feel comfortable if you grew up Catholic. Raise your hand if you grew up Catholic. Let me just see this again. We like to do this so you, you can feel comfortable about it, okay? I want you to know that I am not a Protestant, I'm not a Protestant. The root word of Protestant is protest, right? And and we have some differences with the Catholic Church. I have some things that I think ought to be done maybe a little bit differently than the Catholic Church, but I'm not protesting the Church. I'm a child of God. I'm a Christ follower. I'm happy working with anyone else who is a child of God and a Christ follower, and that includes the Catholic Church. Here's what's so important to me. Jesus said, He said to them one day, they were like, Jesus, people are driving out demons in in your name and we don't know them. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. And Jesus said, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. The last thing we need is more Christians fighting against each other. There are a lot of people who worship in a lot of different kinds of churches and Call the name Jesus, okay? There are Jesus followers who are Lutherans, Presbyterians, Dutch, Reformed. I mean, so many different people, so many different denominations. And and I wish there weren't, but but here's the deal. On Judgment Day, there will not be a test, and God's not going to ask you, you know, which flavor were you, and let me see if you're going to get in or not. There's an old joke about a guy who arrives in heaven, and and Peter says, okay, what denomination were you? And the guy says, Methodist. And Peter says, okay, go to room 24, but be quiet, going by room 8. Another guy, okay, what, what, what denomination were you? The guy says, Presbyterian. Okay, Peter says, go to room 18, but be quiet going by room 8. Third guy comes up, okay, what, what denomination were you? Catholic. Okay, but be quiet going by, go, go to room 11, but be quiet going by room 8. And, and the guy's been listening to all this. He's like, I understand different rooms for different denominations, but why do we have to be quiet going by room 8? Peter says, well, the Baptists are in there and they think they're the only ones here. You just fill in the blank with whatever denomination you want to make fun of. We, we all do that, okay? The, the truth is we all do that. But, but here's my point. In, in John 17, just before Jesus is going to go back to the Father, he prays a prayer that is hugely important. This is why when people say, what, what kind of church are you? We always say we are non-denominational. Non-denominational. We're not undenominational, we're not anti-denominational, just, we just don't have a flavor, we just don't have one, right? You're welcome from everywhere. Here's why, John 17, I will remain in the world no longer, Father, he's praying this to God, but they are still in the world, so Holy Father, protect them in the power of your name, so that they may be brought, so that they may be one as we are one. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me. That's what... I'd like to see happen. So one in four Americans call themselves Catholic, an estimated billion people worldwide. If you're Catholic, we just got to let you know, we welcome you, we're glad you're here, and I-, I get a lot of questions from people that come from your background. Uh, questions about the Bible, about Parkview, about you know, what-, what makes it different, um, is it legal for me to be here? You know? uh, c- can you absolve me? Are you going to report me? Does the bishop have cameras around here somewhere? And I get a lot of questions from people that didn't grow up Catholic that aren't Catholic. Like, why do they do the things they do and, you know, not do the things they do? And how come we don't kneel more and, you know, all that kind of stuff? And here's what I want you to know. We have plenty in common. We all came from the same place. Up till the 1500s. For the most part, unless you're Greek or Armenian, most of us came from the same background up to the 1500s. And up to the uh, about 1,000 years, 1,100 years after Jesus, everybody was in one pile. There was one universal church. The word Catholic literally means universal. All right? We're going to do the Apostles' Creed in a minute. And I left it as Catholic. I didn't change it to universal because it is the same word. Okay? It's really important that you understand that. But you got to understand that up until 1500s, until Martin Luther, you know, said, you know what, there's some stuff that's messed up here, and we got to change it. We were all together. And, and to, be, to be clear, a lot of the things that Martin Luther had a problem with, there were 95 of them. He wrote them on a piece of paper and nailed them to the door in Wittenberg, Germany, and said, these things are wrong, and we need to change them. A lot of those things are, are, are things that the, the Catholic Church has changed as well. So so I want you to know that we came from the same background. Um, we don't do a lot of, like, let's say the Lord's Prayer again, or let's do the Apostles' Creed again. We, we we don't do a lot of those kinds of things because we we believe that that we want we want to pray to God in a relationship. And I, don't, I just I just don't want my kids to you know come to me and and repeat the same thing over over again. You know, they were my daughter so it was like give me money, give me money. But I don't want them to say the same thing over and over again when they come to me. I just want to have a relationship, and that's what we try to do. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing the. the those things, like the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, and as a matter of fact, every once in a while, we do like to do them, and in every kind of of a church, denominational, Anglican, Eastern Orthodox, whatever it is, we can agree on this, so this is what I want you to do. I'd like for you to stand with me, if you would, because I think that's appropriate, and we're going to repeat this creed together, and I'm just going to ask you to say it out loud with me, and know that we all agree on this, and this is the important stuff. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. God, I just want to pray that you'll be with us as we talk about these things. I, I want to pray that you'll be with the Catholic churches around and all the other churches around, Lord. We are not here to take their people. We want to work together because there's... Little time and a lot to do, to so be with us in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Those are the important things, okay? Catholics believe that, I believe that. If you don't believe that yet, I hope that you will, um, and we want to help you. Now, there's some gaps, there's some things that you want to know, what's the difference? And and they're really pretty simple when you nail them down. I'm going to give you four of them. If you want to write these down, you can, Uh, or send this out to your friends when they want to know what's the difference. The Bible, number one, is our sole source of authority. Catholics look to the Bible and tradition. Vatican II and I quote in order to keep the gospel forever whole and alive within the church the apostles left bishops as their successors handing over to them the authority to teach in their own place right Pope Francis is the 266th Pope of the Catholic Church of the Roman Catholic Church a line that leads all the way back to Peter according to to the Catholic Church why? why is that the way that it is? It goes back to a verse that Catholics interpret differently than non-Catholics do. Matthew 16. Jesus is hanging out with the disciples one day. And the people are all talking, you know, the, the disciples are going, people are talking about you, Jesus. Some say you're Elijah. Some say, you You know, some people, people, they love you, man. They, they think you're great, but people don't really know exactly who you are. And, and Jesus says, well, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, God's Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Now I say to you, Jesus says, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. On what rock? If you're Catholic, you believe it's on the rock of Peter. You are Peter, you are the rock. Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, the rock. So I get that. They believed that Peter was the rock, and he was the first of the, of, the, of the papal succession that was going to happen 266 times down to, to Pope Francis, who we all love at this point, and, and we're glad he's there, okay? That's papal succession. That's how this whole thing works. Peter was the first pope. If you're non-Catholic, you believe that, that what they were saying, what Jesus was saying was the rock was what you said. That I am the Christ, the Son, God's Messiah, the Son of the living God. All right? So that, that's, that's the difference. Is the rock Peter, or is the rock me, and I am the Son of God? And I believe it's the latter, and Catholics believe it's the former. It's okay. It's a, it's a difference of opinion. It's okay. You need to understand a couple of things, okay? Um, Peter was married. We know this because he had a mother in law. <laughs> Nobody has a mother in law for fun. When. Uh, <laughs> When Jesus came to Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up, and she began to wait on him. And there's no record of whether Peter's thankful or not, okay? I don't know. But, but, and this is, this again, this is not a big deal, because they didn't change the priest getting married rule until... A thousand years after Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's when the Greek Orthodox split up. So, so those of you that are Greek Orthodox, you got to understand that, you know, along the way, the Greek, the Greek priests were like, oh no, you didn't. I'm not, you know, we're not going there. And, and that's where they split basically over this issue and some other theological issues along the way. So, for a thousand, eleven hundred years, there, there, was, there was no difference. Everybody was the same. And so, it doesn't matter that Peter was married. I, my bigger issue with Peter being the rock, is that Peter was wrong in the Bible. And, and so <clears throat> the whole idea of the infallibility of Peter to me does not, is not congruent with my Bible. And I know this because Peter was wrong about allowing Gentiles to come into the kingdom. He was siding with the group that said that Gentiles, the non-Jews, needed to get circumcised, back to the, back to the joke, they needed to get circumcised before they came into the kingdom of God. And, you know, that kind of hurts your conversion rate a little bit. And Paul was like, no, no, no. We're not, we don't have to be Jews anymore. We're not Jews first and then Christians. We're just Christians. And so Paul literally confronts Peter in the Bible. That's important to me. Non-Catholics believe that Scripture was enough. And, and I'm glad that Peter was who he was and, and, and led the early church. And I'm happy for the church leaders that have been along the way. But when it comes to what God wants... I believe that it came right here. I don't need somebody else with a, with a direct line to God that can tell me what God wants. Vatican II, again, let me quote, Consequently, it is not from sacred Scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred Scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. In other words, the things the church has handed down and the Scripture is what the Catholics use right? There's a lot of times people come to me and they'll go, Catholics are following rules that aren't in the Bible. That's absolutely true. Anybody that understands Catholicism would say that. No good Catholic would deny that, but they have a reason for doing it. And it's the reason that the non-Catholic portion of the Christian world disagrees with, but they're not just making up rules and following for the heck of it. They believe that the office of the Pope and that the church has sacred tradition that has been handed down. So you say, well, that's where they came up with Lent. That's where they came up with no birth control. Those things aren't in the Bible. They're, they're, they're fine. You know, I mean, it's fine if you want to do that. Not eating meat on Friday. Do you, do you know that officially you could substitute something different for that now? A lot of you don't know that. You're still, you know, a lot of people don't. They're still doing the fish thing because they didn't realize it. That You could give up something else and eat steak on Friday night. I mean, a lot of people don't understand where they even come from anymore. All right, The doctrine of purgatory, it's not really in the scripture. Infant baptism is definitely not in Scripture. They changed that 1,100 years after Jesus. Up until then, it was an adult immersion. The eternal virginity of Mary is not in Scripture. It was added. Ash Wednesday, it was Ash Wednesday this week, right? Somebody sent me this sign I thought might have needed punctuation. punctuation would be helpful. I I don't know. Maybe maybe not. I I don't know. For for me, I want to go to this, okay? Everything's not in here, and we all understand that we have to interpret these things along the way, but here's what the Bible says about the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Which leads me to the second discrepancy that I would have with the Catholic Church, and that is we believe in the priesthood of all believers. In the Old Testament, there was was a priestly office. There were people who were set up to be the people who offered the sacrifices, and you had to go through a priest to get to God. Only the priest could go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices and talk to God. We talked about Zachariah, who was the uncle of Jesus, who went into the, you know, that's where he saw a vision of an angel who told him, fear not. We talked about that along the way. It's important that you know that that was the Old Testament system. But when Jesus came, he changed the system. He said you don't don't any longer need to go through another person to get access to God. And it was demonstrated to us by the fact that at the very moment that Jesus died, the temple in the curtain, the temple curtain in the in the Holy of Holies, it separated the Holy of Holies from wherever all the rest of us were, ripped in half, and the Bible tells us it ripped in half from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. Not like somebody ripped it. I mean, this was a big, thick curtain. It was an act of God. It ripped from top to bottom. It was as if God was saying, okay, you don't need to go through anybody else now. Because of Jesus, because of the new covenant, you can come straight to me. So when Jesus is talking, he says, go in all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach him to observe everything I've commanded you. He wasn't talking to an office of people. He wasn't talking to the clergy. He was talking to tax collectors and fishermen. They hadn't been in the seminary. They'd spent three years with Jesus. We'll give them that. But, But these were not officially trained people. And everyone that he called, he sent to do his work. And he said, I want you to go be priests. This is why I wrote the book Life on Mission, because every one of us has a calling. And Catholics believe that there is a priestly office and that they are the only ones who can administer the sacraments. Okay? That's why it is that way. That's why they have to you know, dole out the, the, the hosts and they have, to, they have to administer those things. It also makes for some really fun moments on America's Funniest Home videos. What are you supposed to do? She, she's not supposed to touch the bread. And he's not supposed to touch those. And, I mean, it's just, a, it's just a different, you know, I mean, here's the deal, okay? The, the basic idea behind this is that when Jesus called us, he trained us to go and, and, to, and, and to, to, to change the world, all of us. And one of the things that people would say about the early disciples is it's, they, that they were unschooled and ordinary men. Unschooled and ordinary men. There was nothing special about them except for the fact that they had been changed by Jesus. And Jesus used them and trusted them to deliver the message and develop the message to the rest of the world, and we believe he is still doing it today. The Bible says, and this is Peter, by the way, <clears throat> you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. What I want you to understand is that the call to be a Christian is the call to be a minister. There's no clergy, laity stuff going on in the Bible at all. That's why we let believers do, any believer, do a baptism here, serve communion, pray, visit the sick, share Christ with other people, lead worship, whatever it is. In Acts 2, the words that are used to describe the body of believers in the first century church is everyone, and they, and all together. And they did these things together. And this is how we exercise the priesthood in the kingdom that is today. As a matter of fact, the bigger problem I have with the whole priesthood scenario for me is that Jesus told us not to put people in the place of our relationship with God. Jesus said, and do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. In other words, I mean, I know you guys do this to me sometimes, you're like, "Oh, Father Tim, it's okay, I get it, but, but, but I'm not that, and you call me Pastor Tim if you need a title in front of my name, but you can just call me Tim if you want, because all I am is a, is a dude that gets to work here full time and help you figure out how to live in the kingdom of God and go out and live your life on mission. I mean, very plainly, the Apostle Paul said he gave these gifts to the church. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? In order to prepare God's people to serve. You see, the Christian life is not about just showing up for church and doing your thing every once in a while and then going back home again. Remember the only reason that Jesus left you here on this earth was because you have a job to do. It's not a spectator sport. So get in the game. Why? So the body may be built up together. That's how it was supposed to work. The third thing is we admire Mary, but we don't pray to her. Benjamin was a notoriously bad little boy and very selfish. And one day his dad caught him writing a note to Santa, it was Christmas time. He was writing a note to Santa, you know, dear Santa, I want all this stuff. And dad was just like, i got to teach this boy a lesson. So he went and he put him in the living room. He sat him in front of the nativity scene up on the mantle. And he said, listen, here's what I want you to do, son. You need to sit here and think about what Christmas is really all about. And I want you to write a letter to Jesus. And the father walked away and the boy got out his paper and his pen and started writing. Dear Jesus, I've been a very good boy. Would you please bring me all these things, you know, for Christmas, just doing like the whole Santa thing. And he looked at it again, and he thought, nah, I can't really say that, he scratched it out. So he said, dear Jesus, um, if you bring me everything I want for Christmas this year, I'll be a very good boy next year. And he looked at it, and he thought, nah, that's probably not going to happen either. So he changed it again, he said, dear Jesus, if you bring me everything I want, I'll be a good boy all week. He looked at it again and said, nah, I can't pull it off. Finally, he went up to the mantle, took Mary off the nativity set wrapped her up in a little towel and wrote, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, (laughs) Mary was the one that was chosen by God to be the earthly mother of Jesus, and she is a woman that we should respect like no other. And we learn humility and obedience from her. She is a great example of someone who is completely devoted to God. In Catholic teaching, she is elevated to a place of special sainthood. Mother of God, Queen of Heaven, Eternal Virgin, someone who receives our petitions. And the idea is if you want to get the attention of the son, you go through his mother. And honestly, I did that. I think I won my mother in law over before I won my wife over. Um, she hadn't heard this sermon yet in my Peter joke, so that's probably all done now. But, but, but the idea is, if you want to get to Jesus, it doesn't hurt, and that's the whole idea of sainthood. It's not really, in Catholic teaching, even though you probably thought this, it's not really that you're going through the saints and through Mary to get to God. It's that you're asking them to pray with you. But the Hail Mary closes with the words, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, both now and the hour of our death. Amen. You know this, right? And the problem is, as much as I respect and as much reverence as I have for Mary and the things of the saints, as much as I respect that, the problem is a lot of you grew up thinking that's what you were doing and you were praying to her instead of praying to him. And it distorts Jesus from the central focus. And there is no sainthood in the Bible whatsoever as a separate place. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, Paul would call all of us saints. Saints simply mean holy ones. And we are all holy ones because of the work of Jesus. So those who are in the process of, of, of sanctification, the, the, the sainthood, that's all of us. We're being made holy and perfect by Jesus on the cross. And, and, and Paul said, there is one mediator Between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Again, Catholics believe this also, but I just believe that the Mary thing gets in the way. Mary is blessed among women, but she wasn't perfect. That doctrine was added later. She did have other kids. They're listed in the Bible. And frankly, what I know of Mary and read of Mary in the Bible, I don't think she'd be real comfortable with the title of Queen of Heaven. Because she was the greatest of humble servants in the Bible. And the greatest example of faith we'll ever find. And we should honor her, but we don't need to go through her or add her to get to God. There's one mediator, it's, it's Jesus. Fourth, we trust in God's grace alone for salvation. A major reason that the Protestant Reformation happened in 1517 was that there were a few Catholic scholars, and you got to remember that Martin Luther and the people that, that started the Protestant Revolution, um, they were Catholic scholars who were reading the Bible, and they were going, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. And again, let me say this. Catholics don't believe that you are saved by works either. It just felt that way to most of you growing up. I'll explain this along the way. But, but, but in this day, in the dark ages of the Middle Ages, you, Martin Luther's reading along and he's going, okay, wait a minute, Romans 3.20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Wait, we can't be declared righteous by the law? And why are we doing all these things and making it feel like we're supposed to work ourselves into heaven? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Titus, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. It's because of mercy. It's a gift. It's not because of us. And many of us grew up in non-Catholic backgrounds where we felt like we had to be good enough, and we, had, we felt like if, if we weren't adding to the work of Jesus, we weren't doing the right thing. I mean, I, I grew up to that to a certain degree to that way. And James does tell us that faith without works is dead. So, so don't tell me that you're a believer, and then don't go out and do it. The Works are very important, but the works are supposed to be fueled by your love for God and your neighbor. They're supposed to be fueled by your love for Jesus, not because you're trying to win God's approval. So these Catholic scholars back in, in this Protestant Reformation time, this, this revolution that was going on back in this moment, they, they began to go, wait a minute, we're, we're saved by faith alone. Nothing needs to be added to it. No performance, no requirements, no good works need to be added to it. And, and that's why it was called Protestantism. They were protesting. And, and again, I believe, I, I, I don't, I'm not protesting anything. And the Catholics believe in salvation by grace, but it's the sacramental system that you probably grew up with, that they believe in, that makes things different. And the seven sacraments are the heart of the Catholic faith and practice. They empower a person to remain in the grace of Jesus. So you have baptism and confirmation and communion and penance and last rites. And and, and especially for for many of you, I think it's the penance thing that was the deal. Salvation is maintained through church rites and personal acts. And it felt like I needed to do penance to make up for some of the stuff that I'd done. And then there was a whole mortal venial thing. You know, if it was a venial sin, then I could be forgiven for it. But if it was mortal, then I wasn't. And that's not based on the grace of Jesus dying for all of my sins. And a common theme that comes up when I talk to Catholics, people with a Catholic upbringing, is, man, I never understood grace. And honestly, the Catholic Church is working on that. They really are. Because, again, it wasn't just Catholics that grew up that way. But i got to say it right up front. God's grace is all you need for salvation. There is nothing you can do to earn it, or attain it, or even maintain it. Because of his great love for us, Paul said, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then he goes on a couple of verses later. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. There is zero that you can do to pay for your sins. That's why the cross had to happen. You just can't be good enough, okay? Just, just listen to me and trust me on this, okay? I'm a good person. I'm, I'm serious, I know you're like, I wonder what kind of guy he really is. I, I really am a good person. I'm a better human being than most of the people that you know. I'm just gonna tell you right up front. I, I, I I might be better than you, okay? I'm just going to say this, all right? <clears throat> when I die, some people will want to put up a plaque or a picture somewhere in a storage room or something. I know that's going to happen. I know, I know, I'm not the best person in the room. I know that. I know I'm not the best person in the room. What I'm saying is, if we're grading on the curve, I'm in, okay? Because I know the rest of you, I'm in, all right? That's all I'm saying. But there is no curve. And it's not pass-fail. It's 100% or nothing. The wages of sin is death. For me, for the Pope, for you, for Mother Teresa, for the worst mass murderer on death row. But not to worry. God sent his only son into the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The next verse is one we don't quote as often. I think we should. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So you might say, all right, PT, well, well, then does it matter I mean, I, I understand I'm saved by grace, but I'm a little nervous about it, and I, I still want to make sure that I'm doing my, you know, my, my good works. I still want to make sure that I'm doing my penance. And again, I, I, absolutely you need to be doing your good works. And again, fast if you want to. It's a great biblical principle. Give up meat on Fridays. You don't need all that red meat anyway. Go eat fish. You know, I mean, that whole principle of Ash Wednesday and Lent and the whole principle of so many different things that the Catholic Church has instituted are wonderful practices. You know, don't practice birth control if you don't want to. I mean, don't, don't get married if you don't want to. All of those things are wonderful things for you to do, and your work should show that there's something going on inside of you. But if it becomes about the rules for you, it's not about the relationship anymore. And I can sum the whole thing up this way. I'm a father. And I can't imagine God as our father, when when we think that we have to be good enough to be his child, I can't imagine how that feels to him. Does that make sense to you? I mean, can you imagine your kids, you know, just always living in fear of, well, I gotta make sure I, you know, do this and I don't do that so that dad's happy? maybe some of you grew up that way and you know exactly what that feels like. That's not who God is. At the risk of blasphemy, let me show you what I think the picture of God in your mind needs to be. It's me. (laughs) At the risk of blasphemy. You understand what I'm saying. This is my daughter, Becca, at her 16th birthday party. This should be a picture of God. This is the one who's getting married in June. That's why I messed up. Her 16th birthday party, and I surprised her. And the look, I don't care about her her look on her face. She's surprised. The look on my face is, I did it. I made my daughter happy. That's what a dad wants to do. And the reason I messed up is because uh, she's getting married in June. It's my last daughter to give away. I thought I was fine, you know, because as a dad, you're like, how much is this going to cost? And you're just like stressing about that the whole time. And until she sent me the daddy-daughter dance song, and I've just been dying. I mean, it's not some dumb country, fill your daddy boots song. It's, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's killer Guy named Tyrone Wells, you may not know him. He's a he's a newer on the scene songwriter. Um, wrote this song. Fun story. I was I, I was telling this story of this song. I'll, I'll read you the lyrics in L.A. when I was preaching last weekend, and a guy came up to me and said, hey, I know Tyrone. And so Tyrone has already made a personal video for Becca and Andy for their wedding, congratulating them, and I, I mean, you know, I forgot, oh yeah, I'm preaching in Los Angeles. Well, that's how it goes. He's a great Christian guy. Anyway, he wrote this song to his little daughter, who he showed us in the little video he made for us. And he, and he said the, the lyrics, and this is why I got messed up, this, yeah, I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, until I realized I have to, I have to dance with my daughter To this song. In my eyes, you'll always be the princess in the world to me, more beautiful than any twinkling star. I will guard your innocence, and all I ask in recompense is that you know the truth inside your father's heart. I hope you remember. Don't you dare forget. I will always love you. I will always love you. It's just a simple truth. What else could I do? I will always love you. That's who God is. Don't let anything else get in the way of that. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are.